0: It's Monday, October 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A second whistleblower has now come forward and spoken to the intelligence community inspector general about information that backs up the original whistleblower complaint about the president's dealing with Ukraine. This comes as the former special envoy for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, also released text messages that seem to imply that the Ukrainian president would have to agree to the investigations Trump wanted before they could confirm a trip to the White House. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for the latest. Next, co-working giant WeWork seemed to be destined for a huge public launch. The office-based startup was valued at $47 billion before it filed for its IPO, and then in just about six weeks, it all came crashing down. Once Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork, filed its registration for the IPO, and people got a look at the internal workings of the company, a ton of conflicts of interest and mismanagement was discovered. Then came news that Newman frequently smoked marijuana and drank shots of tequila at work. It changed how investors and his employees saw him and led to his ouster as CEO. Dakin Campbell, senior finance correspondent at Business Insider, joins us for the fall of WeWork. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: George, you, you really think he was serious about thinking that China's going to investigate uh, the Biden family? He I said mean, it right there in public. I think, I think I think he's getting, as I think Senator Rubio said a couple days ago, I think he's getting the press all spun up about this.
0: Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. This uh, story between the president and Ukraine and the whistleblower complaint keeps on going, and the impeachment talk, it's the never-ending story right now. The latest that we have is that there is now a second whistleblower that has spoken to the intelligence community's internal watchdog. Basically, that person has information that backs up the original whistleblower complaint. What do we know about this, Ginger?
2: This is moving at a breakneck pace, especially for Washington, where things tend to move very slowly. But we did learn over the weekend that there is a second likely whistleblower, another intelligence officer who has firsthand knowledge of what happened with President Trump and that phone call with the Ukrainian president. They have spoken, as you said, to the internal investigators at the intelligence department. So the IG is responsible for investigating claims. And when you go to the IG, that's where these whistleblower protections kick in. It's the process that the law says you have to follow in order to be protected. This second whistleblower we know now has retained the same attorney as the first whistleblower. And the attorney has said that there is some discussions that they could also talk at some point to committees in Congress who are conducting these investigations, particularly the House Intelligence Committee. President Trump has tried to paint the initial whistleblower as being partisan or having relied on secondhand knowledge, maybe because they weren't on the phone call themselves as an attempt to discredit them. A second whistleblower, someone who's independent of the first, someone who has more firsthand knowledge, may sort of undermine some of that criticism that we've heard from Trump so far.
0: Now, one of the other things that happened last week was Kurt Volker. He was the former special envoy to Ukraine. He testified before one of the House committees. He also released some text messages from other envoys. One of the big central issues is that the president was withholding aid to Ukraine in exchange for them starting the investigations into the Bidens. And now we're getting some of these text messages that basically said they have to commit to these investigations before they'll allow the Ukrainian president to visit Washington. And so that's what we were learning from some of these text messages.
2: Volker testified in a closed session with the House Intelligence Committee, so we don't know exactly what he said. But these text messages were really illuminating. If you read them, you can see he is talking to other diplomats from the region who are American uh, diplomats. And he really is saying, you know, the administration is, wants the Ukrainians to commit to these investigations. There's a point in one of the text messages where someone else says, well, well, the president said no quid pro quo. So we just remember that the president said that. And then there's another point where someone says, "Maybe we shouldn't be talking about this over text message." Those are exactly the kind of text messages that no one wants to read if they're trying to defend the actions. And, and Volker really sort of brought some credence it appeared to the whistleblower by releasing those.
0: Volker himself even said, though, I didn't really think of anything at the time about withholding the financial aid. He said I just thought it was may- maybe part of his general hate for giving out foreign aid, things like that, not a tool to hold it over them to investigate the Democrats. But there was parts where they were going over like a a statement that the Ukrainians would make saying, oh, we're going to go after Burisma and look into the 2016 election. And there was a conversation between Volker and uh, Giuliani basically saying the wording needs to be a little stronger with this.
2: That's right. And, And we've got two different things going on here. We've got the press to have the Ukrainians investigate Biden, particularly Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. And a second thing, which is to have them investigate the 2016 election. And this is really, um, conspiracy theory that no one has provided any evidence, but an assertion that sort of grown up on the Internet that the secret server that had to do with Hillary Clinton and her emails and some hacking was being housed in the Ukraine. And they wanted the Ukrainians to sort of help revive that controversy and that they would investigate this server in the 2016 election. Again, based on no actual evidence, there's never been any evidence, aside from some Internet conspiracies, that this was something that could have happened worth investigating.
0: I have to end again asking about Joe Biden and how he is doing. There was a report in The New York Times basically saying that a lot of his top donors were getting together. He's fallen behind in fundraising totals, behind Elizabeth Warren and others. How is his campaign holding up?
2: He has had some trouble over the last quarters. So uh, we saw his fundraising totals, as you said, dip. We had already seen Elizabeth Warren gaining ground on him as this sort of controversy exploded onto the forefront. But he's really trying to make the best of it, to turn this into a rallying cry for his supporters. He has told those who are backing his campaign that he will fight. Uh, We see Biden maybe getting a little bit of a second win. The question will be, can he turn it into donations and to support in the polls?
0: And Republicans, in the meantime, still having a hard time defending the president. There were no administration officials that appeared on any of the Sunday shows over the weekend. I'm assuming they're still trying to craft what the messaging will be. And then just a few Republicans really sticking up for the president, even when he called for China to investigate the Bidens. Now, I think Representative Jim Jordan was saying, ah, come on, you don't believe it. You know how he talks.
2: That's right. We saw Jim Jordan and uh, Senator Marco Rubio suggest that the president didn't mean the thing that he said, which is a sort of interesting way to defend uh, the president without actually having to defend him, that Trump had only said that just to get the press riled up and he didn't actually want China. Although we did see the Chinese respond to the president publicly say they would not interfere in the domestic issues of the United States. And we are seeing what appears to be a lot of confusion over the message in Republican circles president trump doesn't have much of a communication staff left anymore many of the people that were in those jobs have left they've been replaced uh, time and time again he appears to be driving a lot of his own communication decisions and so there's not a clear direction from the white house that we're hearing uh, on what their message and their response should be
0: well we're in it for another week of a lot more of this news so we'll stay tuned ginger gibson political reporter for reuters thank you very much for joining us
2: thanks for having me
1: They looked at the business fundamentals and they're not good. WeWork lost something like $2 billion or $1.9 billion in 2018 on revenue of $1.8 billion. So they were basically spending $2 for every $1 that they were getting in. Joining
0: us now is Dakin Campbell, senior finance correspondent at Business Insider. Thanks for joining us, Dakin.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to be talking about this startup, WeWork, and just how amazingly on track it seemed as a company. They were going to file for their initial public offering. They had a super high valuation of $47 billion, and then everything came crashing down really in a matter of six weeks, basically when they made the filing for the initial public offering Everything really just spiraled out of control. And a lot of it has to do with their CEO at the time. And for those that don't know, WeWork, they provide shared workspaces for tech startups, you know, office space and other amenities for people so they don't have to work out of their home or, you know, whatever it is. And they were just hitting on all cylinders. And then came the announcement that they wanted to file for this IPO. Dakin, help us through this. What happened to this company that showed so much promise at the beginning?
1: So this was one of the most highly anticipated IPOs of the year. People were very much looking forward to seeing the S1, which is the IPO filing, and really getting a chance to dig into WeWork's business model. As you mentioned, they basically rent out large commercial spaces and buildings. They improve it. They make it look much nicer. They put in, in some places, beer taps or kombucha taps. And they make it much more attractive for startups and, and small founders. But people didn't really understand what the fundamentals of the business looked like. And the filing was the first chance they got to look at that. And they did not like what they found.
0: And this comes after the big disappointments that Theranos and Uber went through. So everybody was really wary of this happening all over again. And there was a lot of scrutiny that went into it. But as you mentioned, once people started looking into the actual business, there was all sorts of weird things. There was a bunch of conflicts of interest. Shortly before they were going to go public and everything, WeWork wanted to change the name to just We. And Adam Newman bought that name We, and then he made the company pay him to lease that name. There's all sorts of conflicts. Talk a little bit about that.
1: It's quite incredible for a company that was almost going to go public. That could have been a public company by now. The list of related party transactions. So these are deals that happen with the company and somebody related to the company, like the CEO or like a board member. It was more than a hundred mentions in their filing, which the people I talked to have never seen anything quite like that.
0: What happened as everybody really started to drill down and look into how that company
1: operates? I think, as you mentioned, the conflict was a big issue for a lot of people. But once they sort of set that aside or got their heads around the fact that there were so many conflicts, they looked at the business fundamentals and they're not good. WeWork lost something like $2 billion or $1.9 billion in 2018 on revenue of $1.8 billion. So they were basically spending $2 for every $1 that they were getting in. And You mentioned Uber before. What this is is another example of a money-losing startup that public market investors just have a hard time envisioning how they're ever going to make money and who wants to get invested in a business if there's no path to profitability.
0: One of the quotes that was in your article, hype is one of the tech sector's most magical qualities. And like Uber and Lyft, no one really knows how these businesses actually work and at what point they're going to start making huge profits uh, or potential huge profits like that. So it's tough to really see into the future that way. And with all of these you know, shady kind of things that were happening in the background uh, when they were just a private company, that really started setting things on the wrong pathway.
1: I think it's a real sea change for companies coming out of Silicon Valley or high-profile startups. A couple years ago, you would have expected to see other companies, even if they weren't making money, get a lot better reception from investors. And there's something about the last few years, or sorry, the last few months, particularly with the way Uber and its competitor Lyft have traded in the public markets, that people just don't have the patience anymore for money-losing companies. Both Lyft and Uber are down at least 30% from where they sold shares in their own IPO. So that's sort of been a wake-up call for investors to take a harder look or to train Mm -hmm. some more scrutiny on the next money-losing company that was going to come to market. In this case, it was WeWork.
0: And this is why these types of stories are so interesting to me, because – You hear about these companies and the vast potential they have and these huge valuations. And you as a normal person, well, maybe I want to get into this game. Maybe I want to buy stock. Maybe I want to be part of these types of companies. And you hear about Silicon Valley and all this crazy stuff and the tons of money that they're making. And a lot of times, it's not really as it all seems on the front of it. We talk a lot about the culture of Silicon Valley. Talk to us a little bit about Adam Newman as a CEO, because... There's a lot of stories now saying he was a hard partier. When he'd come to the office, he had to make sure you had cases of Don Julio 1942. You had to have music blaring all the time. He smoked marijuana. That was one of the other big things that really kind of made people run away from the company.
1: He is sort of the hyperbolic CEO. He comes into a room incredibly charismatic. Sort of all of the attention is drawn to him. And he's just great at selling. And so... Yeah. When it came time to, over the past years, to sell the promise of WeWork, which is effectively a real estate company that's renting out commercial office space, he really talked it up and made it sound like it could be something much bigger than just real estate. And so a lot of people were drawn to his magnetism and persuaded and sort of overcome by his magnetism. But meanwhile, reporting that I've done and that my colleagues have done, suggest that, that he was doing a lot of partying. He was really leading a very glamorous lifestyle even before WeWork had done an IPO and he'd been able to cash out his shares. I mean, it's worth noting he was worth at $1.7 billion wow. on paper when WeWork was valued at $47 billion, And that $7 billion may be down to close to zero, if not zero.
0: There was a funny nugget of the article that one of your colleagues wrote. They said, to maximize his time, Newman often held meetings, including job interviews on his private plane or in chauffeured cars. And he'd order chaser cars to follow so that when the meeting finished, they can be driven back to wherever they had to go. Okay. <laughs> and that's just uh, you know a hilarious story of a guy with a ton of money and all the stuff you can do with it. You know, You mentioned how charismatic he was and how people really were sold on his vision of the company. One of those people were Masayoshi's son, the CEO of SoftBank. And he was one of the largest investors. And this kind of goes back into all the stuff that was happening before the IPO. The news was starting to go bad. They were telling him, hey, maybe we should scale back or cancel or postpone the IPO. And Newman wanted to keep going with this thing. Um, Tell us a little bit about how all that went.
1: So Masa, as he's known, raised a $100 billion dollar funds called the Vision Fund a few years ago. And he has gone into Silicon Valley and, and around the globe looking for promising startups to invest in. And so him and SoftBank are sort of the example of all of the money that's been flowing to these startups. And uh, and so he put something like $10.5 billion into WeWork over several investing round. Wow. but when it became clear that uh, that the 47 billion dollar valuation wasn't going to be held up and that investors were valuing the company much lower uh, masa really pushed to delay the IPO and for a couple weeks uh, from what we understand and what others have reported uh, masa was really pushing to delay the IPO while Adam Newman the CEO was really pushing forward to to get it done and and the reason that he really wanted to get the IPO done is because WeWork uses so much money. They eat up so much capital uh, that Newman, I think, knew, and I, I think knew that they needed the IPO to to continue funding his global expansion plans. And so I think that's why he, you know, Masa wanted to delay it because he was going to lose money on his, investment, Newman wanted to push forward because he knew he needed the money that would have been raised in the IPO to continue to fund his company.
0: And so where are we now with all of this? Uh, Adam Newman was ousted as CEO. He still serves in some other capacity. The company, now that we see really kind of the the business structure of it, um, You know, they, they installed two other co-CEOs to kind of See where what they could still do with the company. The IPO is off, obviously. Um, what do we make of this company now?
1: It's a good question. We we're waiting to see sort of what they can do with it. Uh, they have retrenched and they're going to focus on the office leasing market. Uh, so they've they've definitely given up already on Adam Newman's vision of WeWork being uh, something much bigger than real estate and. Uh, he even wanted to, you know, he talked in terms of, of WeWork changing the world. Uh, but his, uh, his replacements have come in. They've, they're they starting to sell uh, some investments and in some other companies that WeWork had bought. Uh, Adam Newman bought a $60 million Gulfstream jet a couple years ago. Uh, the co-CEOs are looking to sell that. And so they're basically just trying to get out of, any extraneous businesses that that WeWork might have been in so that they can cut down on uh, on their expenses and try to uh, try to turn the business around.
0: Wow. I, it's a great story, uh, Dakin. The article that you wrote really kind of just it's a big overview of how this thing spiraled down in. Uh, In a matter of six weeks. I mean, you look at these dates and they're happening, you know, a few days after the other, all these big bombshells that keep chipping away at it. So I suggest everybody go out and read it. Dakin Campbell, senior finance correspondent at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining
1: us. Thank you.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.